Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and making strange choices. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, doing pretty good. It's been a while since we talked, or at least on the podcast anyway. Yeah, we, we make bad decisions during hiatuses. Hi, hiatuses? Something like that. Something like that. I don't think all of my decisions were bad. No, no. Neither but were I, mine, but they were... Unless we're talking about dietary decisions, because <laughs> that was a disaster. There, there is that. So what's going on, Joe? So it's been almost a month since we talked, and since then I've released a couple of updates to retrospective timelines and started working on another one, and then also started working on a larger release i'm tentatively calling version 2.0 um but i guess i'll start with version 1.0.1 which was actually submitted the last time we talked it just wasn't released yet and that one just added a little uh kind of temporary workaround for dismissing the keyboard because the swift ui text field has no way to dismiss a keyboard but it does. You can hit the return key, but the return key doesn't give you any visual cue that that's a thing that it does. So I added a little keyboard icon above the field on a couple of layouts because I, you know, I had five or six people ask in the course of a couple of days, like, how do I dismiss the keyboard? I'm like, hit the return key. But apparently that wasn't obvious enough. Yeah. I've... So I put that out there. I put, <laughs> go ahead. I, I started, like, I never really thought about the fact that the behavior of the text field in iOS isn't consistent oh, it's all very the time inconsistent. until you mentioned it. <laughs> and now I'm seeing it everywhere and it drives me nuts. So mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah. I mean, dismissing the keyboard in general, there's just no consistent way of doing it. Yeah. That's pretty bad. The other thing that was in that release was improved sharing options. So I basically it shipped with just a single option to share an event as a selected color. And then I added, I think I added all of the app colors and then added a light mode and a dark mode. So there's around 30 permutations that you can toggle between now. Um, but other than that, it's pretty much the same feature. But then, then I kind of yanked that out of the app and made myself a little utility for it. So I use these same type of images when I write a blog post. I want to have like an image card for the featured image section. Uh, it'll show up in like Twitter cards and Facebook previews and stuff like that when you link on those sites. So that was a fun little side project. I, you know, I thought about like, is this an app but i don't really think it is there are lots of apps like that already and a lot of them have significantly more features that i probably wouldn't want to deal with so i think it's just going to stay a hobby thing for now so then a couple weeks after that i released version 1.0.2 and I'll, I'll throw some links in the show notes for these versions because i wrote some blog posts about them and explained some of the new features uh, that one basically just added back a feature that I had to pull when I launched the app in early December, 
which was the ability to filter events on the event list. It did ship with the ability to filter on the the query list, like the on this day or all events, things like that. But the version of the feature that was for a specific timeline was broken and uh, didn't have time to fix it at the time. So I got that working and that kind of led into what I'm working on now. Um, because as I, I built that out, I thought it would be kind of nice if I could save these filter settings in the timeline. So like always open this timeline with these filter settings. And looking at my timeline edit window, all the space was taken up by the color picker and the icon picker. And there wasn't really a, a way to put new fields on there. They really worked with that layout. And I was having so many problems with that text field on that layout anyway, I decided it was time to rebuild it. And kind of giving up on Apple fixing the Swift UI text field anytime soon, probably not until next fall at this point. So I decided to rebuild the entire timeline, edit view and add view in UI kit. So it's kind of, most of the app is in Swift UI, but when you open the modal to add a timeline or edit a timeline that opens a, a modal view controller that's all built in UI kit and some storyboards, some in code. It's kind of wherever it, it seemed easiest to do something. And I just built that out yesterday and today. I've got some screenshots of like the before and after as of yesterday, and then I've got some screenshots of what it looks like today. So I'll post some links to those, but it's way cleaner now. And I think the biggest difference is the color picker is now in a single row. And it's actually, I didn't know that you could do this. The, the whole layout is built with a static table view controller, which I know how to do those. That's how I always make data entry forms. But in a single cell, you can put an entire collection view in there and then make that view controller be as delegate and implement all the functions that you need. So there's a row with a color picker and a row with an icon picker. And those are full-blown collection views that are just sitting in a single row in a table view. Just kind of breaks my head a little bit, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated by <clears throat> playing with table views that are modern, like the the view in uh, desktop terms. It's a a view based table view rather than a cell based table view. Mm -hmm. Cell based always kind of looks like a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. View based yeah. is like anything can go in there, and it's. Really interesting stuff you can do with that. Yeah, so that that is mostly done. I, I really just started working on that yesterday and today. It took a lot of time because I don't remember how to do a lot of stuff in UI Kit. So it took a lot of figuring it out as I go. I will say this though, after six months of working in Swift UI, it was kind of refreshing to immediately find the answer to every question. <laughs> like everything has been solved. And that part was kind of nice. It's like, how do I do this? Oh, it's right here. The first first Google result, maybe from four years ago, but it's still accurate. Like, didn't have any trouble figuring out how to do this stuff. Yeah. And so that's going to be coming later this week. I'm probably, before I ship that update, I'm probably going to give the event edit screen the same treatment 
which won't be as much work because it's it's really just far fewer fields. Uh, there's no color picker, there's no icon picker. There is the timeline picker, so I need to re-implement that. And I'm, I was actually thinking, I'm, I'm launching from a list view built in Swift UI, opening a modal and UI kit. I wonder if I can still keep my timeline picker in Swift UI and segue over into the Swift UI version of the picker and then back. So basically have the Swift UI view behave in kind of a different way. It's almost like a Swift UI sandwich uh, with UI kit in the middle. And we have our show title. <laughs> nice. So that remains to be seen. But it, no, since I can replace the text field on this layout, I can also add back the missing notes feature that I had to pull because the text view was too buggy. My you know, custom Swift UI wrapper for it was too buggy. So now I can just add a regular UI text view and uh, implement it that way. So that got me thinking this morning, how much of this app should I replace with UIKit? That really leaves the list of timelines and the list of events. There's a couple other minor screens like the settings screen and the sharing screen, the event detail, things like that. And I don't have any pressing need to replace any of those, but I'm kind of wondering if it's worth it. Um, it does get me back some features that I had to pull, particularly from the iPad interface because of how buggy Swift UI navigation is. So if I moved everything back to UIKit, I mean, it would probably take the better part of a week to two weeks worth of work. So it's not nothing. Like the, the form I did yesterday and today, that took about nine hours worth of work. Now, probably three hours of that is me figuring out how to do stuff I forgot about. Um, but re-implementing the timeline list view and then re-implementing the navigation stack, I could probably go back to a master detail view, but it takes a while to get all the settings and get that working the way that I want it to. Then re-implementing the event view or event list view and then those other kind of minor views. So it really depends. I'm kind of on the fence now. I haven't really decided. I haven't spent too much time thinking it through. I'm not inclined to do work that doesn't need to be done. Um, so I think I may just wait and see how the event list shapes up as I make improvements for it or with it, with the uh, some of the new features we'll talk about in the roadmap. So I guess that's my next short topic is kind of thinking about version 2.0 of the software. And this is a lot of the work that I did over the break was really thinking about what I want the app to be and also kind of thinking about doing a proper launch this time. So thinking of, and I wrote some blog posts about this. I had to get version one out there because it was obvious from any of the one who listened to the show that I was just going to keep working on this indefinitely and never ship anything. So I had to draw a line somewhere and say, I'm, I'm putting this out there. It's good enough. It's good enough to be useful, but I didn't do any kind of official launch. I didn't spend any time reaching out to press. I didn't really do anything at all other than post it in the app store and post some links on Twitter and write a blog post. So with version two, I want to take a different approach and 
we'll talk about the features in a moment, but my plan is to build a working version of all the major features in Swift UI or in the version two, and then open a public test flight and try to get as many people looking at the app as possible and talking about the app. And from there, during the test flight, sending it out to press and kind of getting the app, getting a lot of feedback about the app as I develop it and making sure the visual timeline features are, are really useful to people, but also having a very set launch date when I'm sure that things are going to be coming. Um, so rather than impulsively saying, well, you know, this is good enough, I'll go ahead and ship it. It's going to be more of a planning it out in advance and then trying to get some some people to write some blog posts about it or talk about it. And then uh, maybe hit up some of our fellow indie podcasters and see if anybody wants to talk about the app or Swift UI or any of the features that I made, that type of stuff. So that's the tentative plan. I have no idea how long that's going to take to get to version two. I have four, I have three major features and lots of little features that would be rolled into that. Some of the little features may be coming before that. Um, and maybe that's a good discussion for next week of how to separate out the current version that I'm working on and the, the bigger version that I'm working towards. Uh, you can kind of help me th with that in terms of managing the branches and figuring out the best way to implement that. Cool. I've done stuff like that a couple times with um, when I start working on the next FileMaker update. Mm -hmm. There ends up being a branch just for, you know, what'll be like the next one will be version 19. So there's a FileMaker 19 branch and then a separate branch for current development because very often that next version branch takes like two months but mm -hmm. yeah we can totally dig into that so the, some of the features on the roadmap um the custom queries thing is probably the one we've talked about most on the podcast so that is replacing the four uh, query views at the top so right now there's on this day favorites ongoing and all dates and those are some simple report views that reach across all your timelines and aggregate data. And what I want to do is make a, basically replace those with a custom feature. I'm kind of calling it either smart timelines or magic timelines. And I kind of go back and forth on those two. Um, smart timelines would probably make more sense for people who've been using Apple products for a long time because they're just like the smart searches or smart lists that you see a lot on Mac OS. But that's basically what I'm building is a way to define conditions for a query and be able to combine them with and and or compounds and things like that. And then save that as a record, as a report that always returns the current results for that. And I may do that in the timelines table and just add like a one-to-one -one relationship with the query fields. So you have the same customization that you do with timelines or I may add a second table for that. Like, you know, the, the schema part is not the hard part of that. It's the, how do I get that data into, out of the UI and into someplace where it needs to live in the core data backend. Um, so that's one of the bigger ones. And that ties into the other two big ones 
the other one is the visual interface for the timelines. And I'm currently thinking a lot about an idea that Dave had when we talked about this a couple weeks ago off the air, which was really keeping this in the table view style of presentation rather than going totally abstract with the views, treat the timeline more like a, a table view where dates with no events on them can just be empty rows and they can be formatted in a certain way, take up less space, that type of stuff. But, you know, if you've got a timeline that covers a year, show records for the entire year and then populate the rows that have events on them. And if I do this in UIKit, I can even use a collection view in those rows for multiple events. So you can scroll side to side in them. And then I could probably even implement that in such a way where you could you know, quickly show and hide the empty rows. But this whole feature is gonna take a lot of work. And if I do it the way that I wanna do, I'd like to do kind of level of detail versions of it where it maybe may have a default view of you know daily appearance, but you can zoom out into week mode and everything. Um, you know, the sectioning moves from days to weeks and then to months and then to years, things like that. So kind of lots of different level of detail to be able to look at the most data or look at the most granular data and then how that translates into anything exportable, I don't know. <laughs> um, so maybe I need to stop thinking about it as the visual timeline, but it fills the same place in my plan as that feature of having a way to reason about the data in terms of relative time, but also being able to collapse that down into just a list, be able to move between those two states would be really cool too. So that one is going to be most of the work. Um, the third big feature is Siri shortcuts integration. And this has two things I want to do with it. One is just to be able to create an event for a timeline. Um, I don't think I'm going to let you, at least initially, not have too much control. It's basically like pick an existing timeline and create an event for it. And then if you want to add events in multiple timelines, just make multiple shortcuts and do it yourself. Um, but just a way to get data into the app from Siri shortcuts. The other more important feature is a way for Siri shortcuts to run some queries. So the initial idea was just mimicking the app widget to say, give me the on this day result and show me anything that happened on this day. But if I rebuild or if I build those custom queries or the smart timelines, I could make those the endpoint for the Siri shortcuts. So any of those that you've made in the app, you can then run from Siri shortcuts and get a, a list of events back. So that may kind of solve everything. So those are the three big features. We got the custom queries, the improved event lists, and then Siri shortcuts. And then some other things like notifications, for events. Uh, Charlie, previous guest on the podcast, mentioned yesterday on Twitter, he'd like to be able to set up notifications for, with some basic settings. Like I want to be notified a week in advance or a day in advance, things like that. So yeah, that's, that's retrospective timelines 2020, I guess.
very it's cool. Kind of my, my plans on it. It's a lot of work to do, and uh, I have no idea. Like version 1.0.3 will be, you know, soon. Version 2.0 could be a month from now or six months from now or a year from now. I have no idea. Yeah. I really need to get into these features to before I can really say. So one other quick side project before we dive into your update <laughs> is uh, I made a a side project for myself. And this is something I'm considering making into a product at some point in the future, but I have no idea if and when that'll happen. But we mentioned it a couple weeks ago, how I hate all time tracking apps. Like I, I, they're just all bad. I don't want to, I guess I should clarify, when I say I wanna track my time, all I wanna do is track how long I spent on something. I don't want to say I started a task at 7.15 and worked on it until 11. I don't ever want to punch a clock. I don't want to use the, the time pickers in iOS. I don't want to use the, the, the uh -huh. time. I don't want to type in a time value on the Mac. I just hate that stuff. Just let me hit a button that says one hour or two hours, or three hours or 15 minutes. So that's what I made for myself. And it is really primitive. And it has basically a list of activities. So you can create an activity an activity is basically just anything that I track time on. And then you can add time entry records, which are just called logs at this point. And the only thing that's kind of special about the app right now is that data entry screen for entering the logs is just made up of a big empty time field. So zero colon zero zero. And then six buttons to add five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, or three hours. Tapping those adds that increment of time to the total, and then you hit done. And it was kind of a joke the other day because it took me about three days worth of work to be able to quickly add my time in about 20 seconds a day. So I basically, <laughs> you know, spent 18 hours in exchange for 20 seconds a day. So, yeah. <laughs> That is the, the curse of a software developer is, you know, well, I, I could make an app to do this, mm -hmm. but how long is it going to take me to make that app? Yeah. When does it, when does it start paying dividends? Yeah. But personal satisfaction and happiness is a dividend. Yeah. And one of the reasons I did it is because I have tried dozens of other apps and services and none of them work the way that I want. So this wasn't like... I'm making an app when I could have just used something else. If there was something else, I would have used it. And I've tried lots of other stuff and I'm just over that. So it does, it is backed with core data and CloudKit. So all of my data syncs between devices. I don't have it on multiple devices right now. I'm just running it on my phone, um, but it's good enough. I made myself a favorites view and the favorites view just takes some of my favorite activities. So whatever I'm currently focused on aggregates them in one place and then a single tap on them opens the log picker to add a new record. So rather than cycling through the navigation and then the today view just shows me a list of logs in descending order of creation for that day. And then I've also got a date picker on there to be able to flip between multiple days. Um, so I can kind of look back at my week and I even made myself a this week report so I can, you know, on Saturday morning, 
how much time did I really spend on various things this week? And then from there, I can kind of expand this out. You know, activities could have child activities. I may be adding a tagging system. I may add a, <clears throat> a goal setting system where you could basically, similar to the custom queries and retrospective timelines, define a list of criteria and then a goal for that criteria. So say, select these activ these five activities. I wanted to spend at least 10 hours on these five activities this week or no more than 20 hours on this category or this tag, things like that. Um, but that's the stuff that I thought about doing and Dave helped me think through some of the edge cases around that, but I haven't done any of that yet. I got it as far as it is and then I've just been using it since then. But it's a nice little tool to have. It doesn't have an app icon, which to me means this isn't real yet. And I, like, I don't, on the one hand, I don't like having a missing app icon on my home screen, but on the other hand, like as soon as I give it an app icon, then it's work. <laughs> then it's a thing. Yeah. So right now it's no, in that, I, yeah. Right now it's in a quantum state between hobby and project. <laughs> Anyway, that's my update. What's going on with you, Dave? Oh, so many changes. So much progress. Um, yeah. It actually makes me a little bit sad because you get all that during a hiatus. And now I'm wondering if like hiatus is in the podcast or my most productive time, which makes no sense whatsoever with the amount of time it actually takes me to do this podcast. Um <laughs> Does, does this need to be like a quarterly podcast? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know based upon our new schedule. Um, so the first thing I spent a ton of time on was the FileMaker calculation parser itself. And I got a number of requests from other developers, interested developers, who wanted to play with it. Mm. And just mess with it and kind of see what it did and try and beat it, try and write a calculation that it couldn't handle. And so I ended up making an app. Um, I had an app for my own test purposes, but it was very kind of hard coded. Like I'd edit the code of the app when I wanted to test a different calculation. Hmm. Um, and so I ended up making this app and it's got two interfaces the first is a single function interface. So you can just kind of type in. And then in a second pane, it does a web view where it can kind of color things and highlight them and format them in the way that the parser is thinking about the calculation you just typed in. And then the third pane just kind of logs what the parser was doing in the background. And that's the kind of technical information for me to see what it was doing correctly or doing wrong. Um, the second interface for it is an XML scanner. So FileMaker has for quite a few years, while there's a variation every four or five versions in the exact formatting of the XML, one of the nice things is the plain text representation of a calculation has actually stuck with the same tag. It's just a calculation. And so I could relatively easily make a generic scanner that could just eat any of those types of uh, XML 
find all the calculations in them, turn them into a unique list of calculations, run every single one of them through the parser, and log any time it bumped into a problem. Hmm. And that works pretty well. And then each of those interfaces just has a little submit button that emails me whatever those results were if there was any kind of problem. And so I can just kind of throw this out and let people start playing with it. And I knocked out a couple of versions of that um, that I'll, what happened in those I'll talk about in a minute. <clears throat> but uh, at this point, I'm actually ready to throw it out to an even wider audience. So sometime in the next day or so, I'm going to tweet and such with a particular link that we'll put in the show notes that would let uh, you know, file maker developers who are interested in this project play with this tiny little component of the larger future thing. Um, I do have to add in a caveat. This is not a new Geist Interactive app. <laughs> this is not, you know, some new product. Yeah. This is a little tiny demo tool for getting further testers for a particular, particularly complex chunk of code. Um, but in the last couple of days, I haven't gotten a lot of bug reports. So I need more people to throw weirder code at it and see if something goes wrong. So that's what I'll be tossing out to everybody. Um, you need prizes. <laughs> I, I'm not yet to the point that I'm ready to offer prizes for beating the parser. Maybe, maybe like a, a hall of fame, like a little page somewhere on your website. Like these people beat the beat this version of the parser. Mm -hmm. uh, I've actually got some statistics on that to a certain degree because I have each time somebody sends me something that doesn't work, I kind of turn it into a perfect unit test. Mm -hmm. And there's a particular section of my unit tests that are labeled by the name of the developer that sent me the stuff. Nice. So I'm tracking kind of new bugs found in the parser in that section. I'm up to about 292 unit tests, which is awesome. And I still want that to go higher. Uh, there's two big outstanding issues with it. The first is that FileMaker will actually let you define a let variable or a local variable or a global variable that has the same name as logical operators. That's awful. So you can name a variable and, and FileMaker will go, oh, okay, that's what and means now. And for the rest of the calculation, it will work as though whatever value you insert, it's just a variable at that point. You've broken the logical operator for the rest of the calculation. And that's going to need a much smarter parser that, hierarchically understands the scope of let statements and then changes the rules of the parser based upon the variables that were defined earlier. And that I'd like to get to at some point because it's going to solve some other problems. But in the end, that's just, that. that's all. It's not an order of magnitude more complicated, but it's like four or five times more complicated at least from what I can see so far. It may even require a multi-pass parser to do that 
does some pre-parsing and then runs that through another parser that can handle whatever the output was from the original one. And yeah, I'm just not ready to go there yet. <laughs> um, I, I haven't actually, I don't recall bumped into one of those in a real live system. This was that. something that somebody figured out and threw at FileMaker and FileMaker smiled and said, sure, I can run that calculation. And so it's got a unit test for it. And that's the other thing that's kind of weird is my system is not passing all unit tests right now. And to a certain degree, that's okay. It just kind of has to be. <laughs> there are also one of the developers who I will not name to protect the guilty mm -hmm. um, is really good at writing the most horrible looking calculations you have ever seen in your life. I know, as, I, I know who this is. <laughs> as, as far as like uh, variable names that are composed of portions of escape characters and strings and maybe even comments inside the body of the name of the variable. And then using that later in the calculation and FileMaker just smiles and goes, sure, that's a valid construct. And I've got like 80% of his stuff fixed, but there's one or two that are just not there. And it's some kind of order of operations thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you start a string and then put what looks like a comment in the middle of the string and then close the string you need the parser to be able to say this is a string and the fact that you put a double slash in the middle of it doesn't start a comment that runs through that end quote. And in most cases, I've got this right, but he's found some weird little edge cases that are, you know, you do massive combinations of these three things. Uh, comments, strings, and escape characters. And there's one or two spots where I'm not quite hitting those in the right order. And so they're not, they're getting conflicts. Um, for now on those two things, I'm kind of punting, mm -hmm. which I'm not thrilled about, but a, we're talking about artificial test cases, yeah. not real test cases. Yeah. If somebody sends me a, real one that looks like a real calculation i'll probably prioritize these a little more <clears throat> but um there's also the fact that in the final app the app is going to have to be able to punt it's going to have to try and figure out a calculation and realize that it can't and generate an error report for the user to say go ahead and send this to me but regardless, this is what I found when I did the comparisons. And so that will deal with a very, very tiny number of false positives. Where something logs as changed when it wasn't technically changed. But it, it's really going to be minuscule. And so I, I'm not hugely worried about it. And I have to write the code that handles it. No, Even if I was passing all my unit tests the future app would still have to be able to handle with, well, what happens if it doesn't? 
So for now, I'm I'm kicking those down the field. Um then I had to get into parsing localized calculations. Hmm. This was something that I had kind of put off for a while. My initial version of the code just kind of accepted every variant at all times, which worked relatively well. Um, you know, uh, uh, and in English would also accept und in German. And this worked fairly well until somebody starts naming variables and things based upon some other language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you could combine those two and technically in the English parser, only the English logical operators should work. The German logical operators should just be words that get incorporated into a variable or a field name or something like that. The German logical operators is a great name for a band. <laughs> um, so... That worked relatively well, but I was getting errors from developers where weird words had popped up in a field name and suddenly the thing wasn't parsing correctly. So then I said, okay, spent a fair amount of time on research and figured out how to make 11 different parsers in Antler, (laughs) which sounds like a lot of work, but on the Antler side was actually relatively simple. There's a construct that you can use that basically just stored the changes for each language. And then each of those files referenced a single common code base that had all the common stuff. Mm -hmm. And it would incorporate that thing basically intelligently. I know it's not intelligent, but it it would do the right thing that I wanted it to do with a really easily maintainable code base. It was perfect in antler (laughs) the problem was once i started actually trying to do something with those parsers i relatively quickly realized i'd like to say very quickly realized but it was only relatively quickly realized that that was going to require 11 times as much code to actually use because even though in my head these are the same things and all these classes are based off of a shared set of base classes, Mm -hmm. there was no easy way to write the code such that all 11 versions could be handled with the same stuff. So when I'm doing reformatting, like for that HTML view in the, in the middle pane, I was going to need either an 11 case switch statement or 11 different things that knew how to reformat this stuff. And I, I got fairly far into it, eh, you know, eight, nine hours before I realized that this answer was just not going to work. <laughs> I, I was, it, you know, the first time you do it, it looks like a manageable amount of code. The eighth time you do it and you realize you're only 20% through the app. You're like, Okay, yeah, no, no, no. This I am not making this unmaintainable monstrosity. Yeah. So, back to the drawing board. Uh, second try is working out very nicely. And it works off of an element of the way Antler works. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times, this 
uh, it's got kind of two passes. The first is a lexer that breaks up the calculation or whatever you're parsing into tokens. Just little chunks. Basically just based upon what the characters are. And then that data gets fed into the parser. And the parser knows how pieces fit together and how they work together to produce something interesting. And so what I figured out how to do is make a language-specific lexer. So 11 different lexers, but just one parser. So I can have one switch statement with 11 cases that says, here's the lexer to use to chunk this up. And then regardless of what the output from that is, I just hand it to one single parser. And the thing is, I only need the lexer at the very, very first step. So it's just one time that I have to do this branch. And after that, everything is dealing with one single parser that knows how to handle everything. Because the structure of the FileMaker calculations doesn't change from language to language. It's just the individual words. So once I did that, I could have the German language lexer and the English language lexer, and it would then properly handle the difference between and and und, or and oder, which I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced, but that's how it's spelled. So that's kind of what I'm working with. Um, so that resolved a pretty large percentage of the outstanding parsing issues. It was surprising how often those kind of conflicts occurred, particularly in international developers. But um, yeah, that that's all basically worked out. So I'm pretty happy with how that worked. I got to throw away a large amount of code, which is painful and yet simultaneously satisfying <laughs> when you can make an 11th as much code do the same thing yeah it's it's kind of cool um so my next big change was reorganizing the app and it involved some stuff that i learned doing this other thing so building this little test app and having separate targets for all the unit tests and things like that. I understood a little bit better about how Visual Studio treats multiple projects in a single solution and how you can make them talk to each other. So basically, I can make a, pro a product in, in that parlance and that product borrows code from a completely other product. And this is helpful because... As of a couple of days ago, the there were four different repos for FM comparison. Mm. There was my parser development area. There's the Mac version. There's the Windows version. And then there's the shared JavaScript UI. And so I've... Basically, I migrated all the parser dev stuff into the Mac version. So there's actually now four products in that solution. Um, FM Comparison Mac, FM Comparison Mac Unit Tests, Parser, 
and parser unit tests. And those things can talk to each other as necessary. Um, I want to bring the Windows version in as well. Because that was one of... By the time I was done architecting this thing, that was going to be the most likely source of problems. It was going to be... I'd figured out how to make a common core of code that did kind of all the back-end crunching. And I was just going to pick that up and copy it into the other project. Which will totally work. It's all architected properly to do it. But I know me, I'm going to mess that up one time. Hmm. I'm going to have the wrong version of the back-end code in one or the other. And if I do it the wrong way and copy from the oldest one to the newest one, I'm going to end up overwriting a bunch of stuff. And keeping those two in sync was going to be difficult. Now I'm pretty sure that I can just add one more product to that for FM comparison windows. Now I won't be able to build the windows version on the Mac mm-hmm. or the Mac version on windows. But one of the cool things is I'll actually be able to use the unit tests in both. Oh, really? So one set of unit tests, because effectively the unit tests are going to be talking to the centralized common core. That's really where I need the unit tests. And so when I copy this whole, or when I, when I bring uh, update the repo on windows and go to do a build, I can run the unit tests there and those unit tests should still work. Now they make, cause different failures, which means I've actually got a spot where the code isn't equivalent or the Mac version and the windows version are different. Done a lot of work to minimize that, but it's still theoretically possible, which is why I wasn't thrilled about writing a ton of unit tests on the Mac side and then not being able to effectively copy those over and have them run again on the windows side. But if it's all one big project, I think it'll all work. Um, I'm 90, 95% sure. That this idea will work. Uh, it was a fair amount of work getting the Mac version and the parser working together, but that was just because I'd really never done it before. Now, the JavaScript UI will likely stay separate. Um, I'm using an entirely different development environment for it. Mm-hmm. And the actual end app really just uses a compiled version of that. So I write all this html and javascript run it through a node compiler or transpiler and turn it into a nice tight chunk of javascript that then gets copied into uh fm comparison automatically it happens every time i build so just throw a little command line thing in there and the first step in the build is copy over the latest version of the interface hmm so I can't forget to do it, which is great. So if I actually get all of that working, the end development environment, just for my flow, is going to be closer to idiot-proof, <laughs> or at least Dave-proof. Um, but that remains to be seen if I can really make all of that work. It'll also be cool because then in my source control, I'll just have the one repo for everything except for the JavaScript. 
And so I'll actually be able to track Mac changes and Windows changes in the same version control repository, which will be great. So, um, yeah. So what's next? Um, while I was putting all this back together, well, while I was working on the parser, something changed somewhere in the Visual Studio C-sharp.net Xamarin world and broke the crap out of my SQLite integration. Oh, fun. Um... Yeah, I'm really not happy about that. Because it took quite a bit of work to get it working in the first place. But I'm dependent upon third-party libraries to make this all work in a cross-platform manner. And in the long run, that made me twitchy. Mm -hmm. Luckily, during initial development is when everything went kablooey. It's better than it happening after the product's been out for a year. Yeah. And then I find out that this was a really bad strategy. So I'm going to have to rewrite the data store for the core stuff. And I think I figured out how to do that. And the end result is going to be code that basically I wrote all of. I mean, in modern computer programming parlance that's not true <laughs> because i'm constantly talking to code that was written by microsoft or written by apple and so but the, the point is like i i have control over everything that that code is doing i can optimize where i need to i think it'll be good um i know i can write cross-platform non-brittle fast code for the data store might require a little more ram but i'm actually not entirely sure of that because sqlite isn't necessarily not memory intensive it's it's got some cool stuff going on but i was using in-memory databases anyway so yeah it was just a weird problem where all of a sudden i would when the app started i would build a database I would make some tables. They've got fields. It's all good. And then when I came back to it, eight seconds later, it would go, hey, those tables aren't there. <laughs> now, this is probably some kind of threading issue in this particular case. But why this has suddenly started to occur, something somewhere along the line changed. And I don't fully know what. And it's proving to be exceptionally difficult to chase down. I think I think those are called visible tables. They're only available when you look at them. <laughs> well, to a certain degree, that's true. Because the way the thing ended up being defined, I'm pretty sure that what's happening is it's losing track of the database between the first access and the second access. And when it goes the second time, it goes, oh, there's no database here. I'll make one. Hmm. And so it's being very helpful. And yet not. Um, and I'm considering digging into some of the high level comparison logic. Um, I'm, I mean, part of this was going to involve the actual integration of the parser code that I've written in Antler, but, um, 
there's there's just some stuff that I've learned along the way that should allow me to write something much better in there. Um, one of the difficulties when I'm working in SQLite with that entire process and the way the comparison works is that I start by effectively dumping into the SQLite table every single element that exists in both databases. Hmm. No comparison happens initially. It just fills a database with all the little pieces and then goes back and starts making relationships between those records, connecting them up and going, these match, these match, these match. This is the same object, but they're different on either side. So log that as a change and then move on. And so it's actually quite a bit of data to load that isn't different at all. Yeah. Like most of the time when you're doing these diffs, 90% of the code didn't change. Most of the time it's going to be less than 1%. But I'm loading every single object into these tables every time. Instead, what I'm thinking I can do is do initial comparison live. And so I can find really basic matches before lo loading the database or whatever the backing data store is. And so I'll only check in to the database things that have some kind of difference. And so that should reduce the amount of data that I'm writing there dramatically. Um, it'll also reduce the size of save files and things like that. Though theoretically, I could build the database, populate it with all this data, and then once I'm done doing the comparison, delete all the stuff that was perfect matches. <laughs> but it's a little roundabout. Yeah. Like, when SQLite was happy and stable, it seemed like a perfectly fine way to tackle the problem. Now that SQLite is twitchy, I'm questioning that entire set of decisions. They're kind of based off of a false premise. So the other cool thing about tackling that is it's going to become dramatically more threadable. Right now, the XML parsing is uh, node-based. Um, and it uses a series of callbacks to find the chunks and break it down into smaller bits. But the problem is that that process basically runs synchronously. It, it starts at the beginning of the XML, finds a chunk and goes, here, I found a chunk. Hmm. And then finds another chunk and goes, here, here's a chunk. And it keeps on going until it reaches the end. And the problem with that is there's no way to speed that part of the process up at all. Yeah. Um, it's got to start at the beginning and it's got to go through to the end. And the other thing there is I can't, it's very complicated to try and make the system, make one node know about information in another node. It's, it's all very, I'm here now, I'm here now. And it largely forgets where it was before. But sometimes that's really helpful. If I change the way that parsing works and do something a little bit more like the way FM Perception does, as we all know, FM Perception is very fast at what it does, so I'm not concerned about the performance. But it should be fairly straightforward for me to thread that entire thing all over the place. 
and go, here, here's a thousand fields. Just spawn a thousand threads and handle this. Um, I'm learning that that's actually a bad idea. Um, so we'll probably break it up into like eight threads so that the computer can still respond to other things while those things are going on. But the point is, I'll be able to do all of these things much more asynchronously if I change the way that parsing happens. So change the way the XML is parsed, change the way the backend data store works and the way the initial comparison happens. It's a fair amount of code. Yeah. But that's, that's what's on the agenda right now. I've started it. There are portions of the old code that I can reuse. There's a lot of knowledge in the old code that I can kind of reformat. But all the stuff that I've written down on physical paper with pencil says that new code will be much shorter, much easier to understand, and more maintainable. Nice. It's a lot of wins. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Again, a lot of these decisions were based off of, hey, SQLite's going to be great. And if it's not, it's time to re-examine the rest of the decisions that were cascading off of that. So this whole project um, of yours, this whole project of yours is a good example of you can write a huge crappy app really fast, but if you want to write a small focused optimized app, it takes forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So little fun. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I'm playing with now. Um, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, next show is in two weeks. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. New schedule. Two weeks from now, we'll do our next show. And, um, Dave will be done with everything he just talked about by then. I'm sure. Uh, here, here's hoping. Actually, let me, let me see if this works. Dave, we're on hiatus for two weeks. <laughs> I'll see if I can think about it that way. <clears throat> so sometime in the next two weeks, uh, we would greatly appreciate it if everyone would um, you know, go on your podcast player of choice, network of choice, whatever, and leave a review for Project Update. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really good way for other people to find this podcast. And we've apparently got a bunch of new listeners that have popped up in the last couple of months. So it would be extremely helpful to us if everyone could leave us a review, like us, star us, whatever it is that you do in whatever your system of choice is. Yeah. Leave us a review on iTunes or Overcast or Pocket Cast. I don't think we're in Spotify, but maybe. Who knows? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.